everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Ideology Podcast. I'm McMurray here with Drew Stedman, and we have a special guest here with us today, Dr. Christina Crenshaw, a lecturer at Baylor University in the Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, an honor to have you here with us today, Christina. And uh, today we're going to be talking about critical theory and some of its implications for us as believers. And again, this podcast, we are exploring various ideologies, but our goal is specifically to equip the believers. So we're going to not go as in-depth as some would potentially like. We're going to do something of a flyover, but touch on the nuances of critical theory and the ways that we feel like are impacting us as believers, engaging the world around us. Uh, So before we turn over to Dr. Crenshaw, Drew, why don't you set us up for where we're going today? You know, when we talk about, when I hear people talking about critical theory, it's interesting because it feels like there are one group of people who really see this as the answer to most of the world's problems. And then there's this other backlash against this where it's almost like this is the bogeyman in the closet that we've got to fight at all costs. What my hope would be as we dive into this topic, uh, that we can look at it and grit it through um, the teachings of Jesus and who we are as believers, uh, maybe with a little bit more nuance and understanding, because it is, and, and we'll get to this in a minute, it is extremely significant and powerful in our culture, maybe in ways that um, some of us haven't realized just how pervasive this is. And I think as believers, it's helpful for us to be able to interact with this concept, but doing so through the lens of Jesus and his work at the cross. So, Christina, take it away. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here today. And I think, you know, in higher ed, we, we try, we strive to be as objective as possible when we are we're looking at, at anything, you know, whether it's the social sciences or the humanities or the hard sciences. And so to, to offer sort of a, just a definition that I feel like is pretty objective and fair to what critical theory is, critical theory is the critique of society, culture, religion, and it's rooted in experience as a foundation for truth. And this idea of unknowing in order to know and in deconstructing power structures in order to get to what is, you know, truth or equality. Within critical theory, I think it's fair to say that reason and logic and even some branches of philosophy and and a lot of the hard science are not solely sufficient roads to truth. And so I think it's also fair to say that sort of these branches of thinking and these frameworks have often had a hard time with critical theory. Um, I don't think that we find critical theory as pervasive, definitely in higher education, in the hard sciences for this very reason. But we see it more within the humanities and the social sciences because it is sort of this wrestling with what is truth and how do we determine truth if we don't really have this foundation for knowing or if we are always trying to undermine what we would consider power or power structures. So I would say that's sort of a broad definition, but it gives us a touchstone and a starting point for what critical theory is. It's a great, great definition. And I know your a lot of your work and specialty has been in both English and the humanities, which is where this is probably at its most pervasive. So why don't you take us into what are some of the roots that you've seen in history of maybe, obviously it's a very 
a long, complicated topic in a short podcast. We can't do it full justice, but we'll hit at least a few of the high points of where this might originate. So, you know, it's interesting because I would say I have equally seen the philosophies or the frameworks of critical theory in both the humanities and in my doctoral studies in the English department, but then also um, my PhD is in education. And I have seen more modern views or takes or teachings of this within the School of Education as well. And so I can give some examples there. But within the humanities, um, I think it's, you know, fair to kind of kind of look back at where critical theory originates. And depending on, you know, where you want your starting point to be, we can see evidence of this even as far back as the Enlightenment movement. When we look at Immanuel Kant's critique of reason, when we look at Rousseau's critique of civil society. So those are sort of like the, the beginning foundations of, you know, what does it mean to really turn these power structures on their head? or to not solely rely on reason. We start to see this more within modernism, you know, the the precursor to postmodern thinking and thought in the 1930s and the 1940s with the Frankfurt School. You know, this may be getting a little like tangentially away from the objective, but we can see a lot of sort of this Marxist theory within the Frankfurt School. I think that that would be fair to say that they would probably agree with that too. And then we get to the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and we start to see that with Jacques Derrida and Mikhail Foucault, and we see this sort of infiltrate the humanities as well. And when we talk about sort of like the roots, there's the roots and the offshoots, critical thinking starts to to branch off into these other, you know, sort of sociological, educational, literary frameworks with post-colonialism, Marxism, feminist theory, gender studies, critical race theory, post-structuralism, and deconstructionism. So if you've heard any of those terms, know that sort of the umbrella, or you know, if we were thinking of like a hub with several spokes, the hub would be critical theory, and that these would be some of the spokes off of that. So that's you know sort of where I've seen that in humanities. I think within the School of Education, I've actually seen this more in sort of modern teachings I, with Paulo Ferreri, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, Peggy McIntosh, who does a lot on unpacking privilege, and um, Kimberly Crenshaw, no relation, but um, she does, she talks a lot about sort of critical theory from a legal perspective. So that to say, just to kind of give this big context, we see it in the humanities, but we also see it within the social sciences. It's great. And it is it is really pervasive. And I would imagine almost everybody listening, you've interacted with this thought, even if all the names that we just shared are new to you and, and these, the concepts or the ideas behind it. So I was trying to think through some examples of how do, I, how do we articulate what's this theory all about? And here's one that I think actually captures kind of the, the strength of critical theory. And that is if you analyze countries that have caste systems and I've spent a lot of time in India in particular, but there's many other countries that have this. And the way a caste system works, it's not just a legal framework where you have certain people in certain castes that are at the bottom of society, and you have other people that are at the top of the society. There have been times when a caste system is reinforced in law, but actually the power structure goes way deeper than that. And that's what makes this so complicated. And so, you know, you look at a nation like India, they actually legally, caste-based discrimination is illegal. You're not supposed to do that. But if you actually dig in to the, the culture itself, the stories, the mythology, the way people relate, the customs in certain villages, even some of the religious frameworks, it's not as simple as just saying we're not going to do caste anymore. It's like the whole system is set up 
And, and one of the, the byproducts of this system is the reinforcement of the structure of the society. And the structure of the society has winners and has losers. And what critical theory would point out is that those at the top aren't always aware of, of the fact that their power um, and the way that they exercise their power, um, what that does and, and the, the privilege that they might have and how somebody who's born into a high caste family, their life looks radically different than somebody who's born into a low caste family. And it's not just a system of, it's not just a system of laws that reinforces that, but the whole way of conceptualizing society is set up for them to be a winner. And, um, and the net result of that is others, are, others lose in that scenario. And of course, on an individual level, um, you'll, you'll always have stories of people transcending that, but the society as a whole, you have power. And so what critical theory is going to point out then is that what we know to be true is often actually a byproduct of what our culture understands. Mm-hmm. And we hit that a couple weeks ago when we talked about the sociology of knowledge that um, there's this real crisis of how can we know anything, you know, and, and this has been, I think, the last 100 years in particular in the humanities is this awareness that whatever we know is always gridded through um, the lens of our culture. And, you know, to use critical theory terms, it's our social location. And, and we develop these narratives, these dominant discourses that those who have power typically get to set the rules for what that's going to be. And then everybody else has to play by those rules. And those rules end up dictating who gets to keep power and who doesn't. So you see it really clearly in a caste system society. But it's, you know, I think what critical theory would point out that those same dynamics are at work in every society, including in the United States. And then those who have power um, are often unable to recognize just how good they have it compared to those who don't. And there's many things that we might accept as common sense and true and right where what a critical uh, theory ideology would say, you need to take a step back, look at that, and analyze that. Is, that. is that really just something that's a social thing? Or how do you really know that that's actually a universal truth? And it's convenient that that universal truth is propagating your power, and then point that out. You know, so I think for us as Christians, it's I, whenever I interact with this, and we've talked about on this podcast before, how do we, how do we think? Um, how do we suspend our own assumptions? How do we interact with thought like this? And what's what I find to be complicated is when I dive into these kind of ideologies or philosophies, I can always find some good truth that as a believer I, I want to really wrestle with. And then I'm also going to be really careful, and we'll turn the corner here in a second, of where these theories do find origins and stuff that I feel fits with our faith, and then where do they not? And where is this anchored in something that is different? And I think our tendency is to throw the whole thing out or, or wholesale accept the whole thing rather than instead rework it through the lens of Jesus and the revealed truth of Scripture and the nature and character of God, which is what we hope to do. Uh, Christina, you said something that I thought, uh, I really like this illustration of roots and fruits. Take us into that thought. Yeah. So I, I, I like to, Drew, that you just mentioned that when you get down to the root of critical theory, I think that we can find some truths that align with our Christian worldview or the Christian narrative. And and I think even from a secular perspective, there are some truths there that are worth paying attention to. So for example, I think it was Lord Acton, you know, kind of like early 20th century historian, and I don't think he was a critical theorist, but I believe he's the one who coined the phrase that absolutely 
absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so I think that that is a tenet of critical theory is to say that, you know, when the, the, the hegemony, so to speak, is in power and that they are not looking out for the best of the people, that there is a lot of corruption and power and self-interest. And I think even to put it into modern terms that, you know, we hear this, this phrase a lot like check your privilege. And I think that there is some validity to that or, or that it's worth pausing to say, okay, where am I coming from a place that sort of has, you know, power or privilege over another group or another, you know, subset of, of people and that there there is some truth to pausing to say, you know, where can I better steward what I have been given to put that more into to biblical terms? Where has the Lord given me something to steward? That said, I think what sort of is concerning about critical theory is that it often, it's it's predicated on the idea that we cannot use frameworks and power structures to understand truth. In preparation for the podcast, we had mentioned how circular the thinking can be with critical theory. One of the things that I had pointed out, again, to use a modern phrase, you know, we talk so much about being a tolerant society. And I think that you know, much of like the idea of love and tolerance does align with, you know, the Christian worldview and teachings. But where it becomes a little problematic is when we point out to others that sometimes they are being intolerant. And then the retort to that is, well, I don't have to be tolerant to your intolerance. And so this idea of like, how do we define tolerance? How do we define truth? How do we define love is really nebulous within critical theory. Again, that can be very problematic. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because it's those who have power who get to define those terms, right? And so yeah. this is where things start to get circular. And when I look at a lot of these different ideologies and theories, uh, I, I think what we have to take it back to is ultimately, I believe there is absolute truth. And um, really, it's a question of epistemology of how do we know truth? The Enlightenment would say truth can be known purely through human reason. And more than anything, critical theory is an attack on the Enlightenment to say you can't actually know truth through human reason uh, because you can't see reason or facts or science or any of that apart from your own culture and your own cultural location. And so what ends up happening is you distort what you know. But then, so this is, this is to me is the critical fork in the road because if I believe in God and if I believe in God's own self-revelation, that then becomes the foundation for truth. So it's not my ability to reason, nor is it my power or absence of power, but it's God's own self-revelation. That is then the foundation of truth from which I build. If I don't believe in that, then you really are not able to understand truth. And that's critical theory's main point, is that you don't really have universal absolute truth that can be ascertained purely through empirical data or human reason. And I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I don't think we can understand or make sense of the world just in our own heads. But I would say that's why we have God. And he then provides the foundation. And that's where I get to use my reason and all that other stuff is under submission to what God has revealed. In the absence of God, that's where all of a sudden, what do you have left? You have power. And that's where, you know, uh, that's where that analysis would go of, I can't understand truth, but I can analyze power. And that then is how I understand and make sense of the world. So it goes back to, how do we think Christian about this? And if I start there, God's own self-revelation, then there still is truth to what's being shared. There there are places where um, I I heed the call to say we need to be aware of our power. And, uh, you know, I've heard people reference, which I agree with. The Bible was mostly written by exiles, slaves, 
um, the marginalized and um, how they understood and, and they experienced God is different than me as an American who has probably more power, wealth, and privilege than any other society in human history. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth there, but ultimately, I'm going to always take it back to God and his own revelation, not to just looking at power in society. And that's then where you get into, uh, I, Tim Keller wrote a, a, an incredible article on biblical justice. And so it's a, this is a complicated topic. It's a very long article, but it's the shortest thing you're going to find that's going to help you do justice to it. So I'll just leave it at that. So it's long, but it's compared to all the books you're going to have to read otherwise. It's a great starting point. And I thought he charitably used the phrase um, that critical theory is ultimately incoherent. And I think that's a great analysis because uh, I think it provides some effective social critique that we need to listen to, though not all. But then I don't think it provides solutions. Because ultimately, if you, if you deconstruct narratives as being intertwined with power, the only way you can do that is with a narrative that's intertwined with power. It's entirely circular. And if you look at where is critical theory most operative, it's with you know, research institutions in the United States where all the power is actually located. And so it's actually those with power pushing a theory about power. I mean, it's, you, know, it's, you start getting into all of it, it's, it's really circular. And even if it might analyze some of the problems in our society, which I think it does in certain instances, I don't think it gives us any kind of solution. And I don't know, is it realistic? Can humans even operate outside of hierarchy and power? I don't think we can. Can we make sense of anything in the world without narrative? I don't think we can. And I can go around deconstructing other people's narratives, but ultimately I can only do that from living within my own narrative. And so where does that come from? And you start going down that trail, you're going to end up with a headache. And I think that's the problem. And I think what we're going to see is actually a lot of disillusionment because it's not going to be capable to provide what it's promising as far as justice or the the, uh, breakthrough that people are wanting to see in our society. Let me jump in here real quick and just attempt to summarize what I hear you guys saying because I feel like a first grader in this conversation today. At the risk of oversimplifying, going back to our conversation about mental maps, and you have the secular mental map and the Christian mental map and these attempts at describing origin stories and narratives and meaning and morality and destiny. And, and again, for me, that boils down to the locus of truth. Is it, is it inside of me or is it outside of me objectively. And if it's outside of me objectively, then that has certain implications. And within the Christian worldview, we would believe that the locus of truth is is objectively outside of the self, outside of the autonomous self. Whereas the, the secular narrative would discredit this idea of an objective truth that is separate from the individual. And so therefore, we have to grapple with these subjective truths. And so critical theory is one way that very intelligent people have tried to grapple with the notion of truth without something kind of fixed and unmoving outside of themselves. Would you guys say that that's... I think that's great yeah, analysis. I think that's true. I think, too, we, we have sort of talked around this, but maybe haven't explicitly said this, but a tenet of critical theory is lived experience, um, which, again, I think highlights some of the irony and the hypocrisy that maybe can live within critical theory is you have these very upper echelon professors, universities, discussing and perpetuating this narrative with very little lived experience about the very thing that they're saying is oppressed. So again, that's kind of, that's, you know, sort of another tenant or branch off of critical theory is it's predicated on this idea that there's always an oppressor and the oppressed, a victimizer and a victim, but they, they sort of fall short at recognizing that they are not in the oppressed or the victim category, and yet they're the, the very 
proponents and teachers of this. So yeah, to, to reiterate what you were saying, Mick, lived experience, this internal locus of control is, is a critical tenet of critical theory. And on a social level, if you only have two categories, that, that dichotomizing of oppressed and oppressor, I think I've seen that in, in a ministry context play out, that people feel kind of forced into one category or the other, especially the younger generations, especially in the social media platforms. You get this kind of call-out culture, this shaming culture that I don't want to identify with the oppressor, so I need to identify with the oppressed without that lived experience. So in our quest to think Christianly about this, if that's a word. Christianly, like that's uh, a good adverb. English, um, <laughs> English grad school over here can help me out. Uh, Christianly about this whole thing, uh, we go back to sin. So we start with God, God's self-revelation, and then we grapple with human sin. I would say critical theory is very aware of social and corporate sin, which, amen, and I, I think you see that um, in Scripture, and I think in our individualistic society we can be tempted to minimize the fact that some sin is embedded in social structures and that that is something we need to wrestle with. Then I think we also have to understand that sin is individual. It's both. And because it's both, I do not believe there are human solutions to the problem of sin. Maybe if it was just one, we could fix it. If people were fundamentally good, we could fix the sin in society. And if society was fundamentally good, we could help people's individual sin. But because everything is warped by sin, I do not believe there can ever be a solution apart from God's redemption. So to go back to that critical theories dialectic, the problem is I'm both, and all of us are both. I am the oppressed and the oppressor. And until we can deal with that, I don't believe there can be any kind of meaningful justice, there can be any kind of meaningful change in our society. We, we can fix one problem, and you see this in history, and typically in doing so, we cause another one. And that goes back to, I can really care and agree with some of the current concerns that drive critical theory about uh, systemic injustice in the world and in our society. And I absolutely believe as Christians, that's something we need to be aware of and care about. But I would argue that we actually have the resources within our own faith to deal with that problem far more than the theories we see in the secular world. And we don't need to go outside. We can hear the social critique, but we don't need to leave the faith. And in fact, it's what Jesus did as being one who was oppressed that then sets both the oppressed and the oppressor free. And it's the work on the cross that provides the solution to get out of these cycles of um, both oppression and sin. And, uh, you know, I think any social analysis, it's very layered. And this is one element of the problem in societies that I can agree with, but there's other elements. There's elements inside of me. And, you know, when you start stacking it all up on top of each other, it does get to be a challenge. And there was one theologian who um, was very involved in liberation theology. Um, that's probably another talk for another time, but another <laughs> thing we, we need to talk about on this podcast. But in short, it was trying to view the church's role as setting people free from oppression and doing it predominantly through very here and now political means. And after decades of doing this, I, I read this article he wrote, this scholarly article he wrote, that he was now advocating for what he called a theology of hopelessness. And what he meant by that was after years of trying to fix this problem using the means of secular culture and political means, he now recognizes that that is hopeless. You can't do it. Having to, to reformulate, and, and I think for us as believers, we need the power of God. We need the restoration of Jesus. And yes, does the church have a role to play in all of that? Absolutely. But do we think that we can do it in our own strength? I would argue that's where we start going outside the bounds of what God has given to us. And I think it's time to take some of the truth, but reformulate it 
as disciples of Jesus who fix our priority on his own revelation and the work he's done on the cross. I think, Drew, just as you were talking, I would agree with everything you said. It occurs to me that one of the things that may be helpful for, you know, particularly millennials and Gen Z, who I think have unknowingly, unwittingly bought into critical theory as their their ideology or their framework for life without putting that in conversation with the Christian worldview is I think where I see hurt on their side is where the church, you know, more big C than the little C has been complicit and has co-opted with weaponizing Christianity. And I think that, you know, historically we can make a case for that and maybe not today, but in more modern times, when we look at slavery, when we look at the civil rights movement, the silence of the church. And so I think that, you know, sort of where the church could take ownership is in recognizing their complicity and and go, right. coming from a posture of humility and saying that is those stances were antithetical to what scripture teaches. And because I think what millennials and Gen Z in particular are finding sort of comfort in is in this idea of throwing off theology and, and orthodox practice in the name of what a friend of mine used today, even on social media, orthopraxy, you know, and pointing out to him that you really need both to have a robust, strong theology, that it's not just the outer workings, but it's the inner workings. But I think that, you know, perhaps the church hasn't done a great job always in communicating, you know, where they have been complicit and, and coming from like a, a humble posture on that and um, instead have, you know, again, unknowingly adopted critical theory as a means of reconciling that, you know, within themselves. Yeah, Christina, great insight. And I think that is something where, you know, there's this this quote, I don't actually know the origin of it, but it's bad theology kills. And essentially, if we do not get our theology clear of who God is, who we are, how we fit, then over time, the fruit of that is inevitably going to lead to all kinds of injustice and problems in our world. And you can see that. Um, in actually really scary ways throughout history. And I think that's a good charge for us is that there needs to not be distance between who we understand God to be and how we then live as a result. Where there has been a gap and there is a gap, that's the place of humility and repentance. But we do so within our identity as disciples of Jesus. We don't have to leave that to go down this other path. And ultimately, it's because I care about the poor. It's because I care about justice. That is why I have to be so careful here because there's not going to be solutions outside of Jesus for those problems. And it's in him that we we have the tools needed to be able to deal with these things. So I can learn. I, I can learn from all kinds of philosophy and social science, and I think we need to do those things, but we can't do so uncritically. And Christina, it's actually something you said as we talk about this, that how do we engage critical thought without adopting a critical spirit? And, and I really like that concept. And so why don't we wrap up with that? Take take me into what, what you meant by that. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, if there is a footnote on my tombstone, let it be that all of education is indoctrination. I think it took me all the way to getting a PhD to realize that. But I think understanding that as we, we take in different theories and different frameworks and different, you know, studying different philosophers and, you know, different works, that that there is a fruitful endeavor in doing that, but it has to stay balanced, and we have to juxtapose that with what Scripture is telling us. And I think that where we see um, sort of like this concentric overlap, we can 
agree with that and again partner with it but where we see that they're really at odds that they're antithetical and I think this is true for any three-year framework we have to say you know as believers that, that again that's antithetical to what we believe and I, I think maybe it's because I'm a high J on the Myers-Briggs but I really like frameworks and I really like touchstones for how to navigate life and so I for me, kind of praxis and all of this is looking at the Christian worldview. You know, when I'm looking at a social problem or, you know, some sort of a theory or thought, I ask myself, do I see the gospel narrative in this creation, fall, redemption, restoration? And that really is a very simplistic tool that helps me navigate social issues. I think another is approaching um, some sort of a, a biblical teaching from a hermeneutical perspective. And Drew, you could probably expound on that more than I could. But I think I want to be a critical thinker. I want to be a lifelong learner. I want to continue to engage the academic community. And I want to mostly be able to communicate to my students, you know, why this is a worthy endeavor. But I can't, as a believer, do that aside from my identity in Christ. And what those worldviews and and Christian frameworks tell me to be true about theology, tell me to be true about life, tell me to be true about relationship with Jesus. And the only way I think to stay rooted in that and to, you know, and to keep a posture of, you know, critical thinker, but not a critical spirit is to continue to keep coming back to that lens and perspective and worldview and to put all things in conversation with what scripture is saying to be true. And that's the heart of all this, uh, you know. I think, uh, and we recognize today is probably a little headier. A lot more titles we're throwing out, but the problem with it is this conversation that for decades has been happening in academia is starting to spill over into the public square with a lot more intensity, especially the last few years. And if you've studied it, you'll notice the catchphrases are starting to pop up in all kinds of places. And I have a concern that we we aren't equipped enough to know how to navigate this this conversation, and so. You know, as we grapple with a lot of these probably new thoughts for most people, we can summarize a lot of this with the word humility. Humility and um, the submission of our mind to Jesus and making sure our thinking, and I really appreciate that, Christina, our thinking is in the narrative of who Jesus is and what he's done in and through his people, the church, and how that's revealed in scripture. And as we approach that conversation with humility, you can't lose. If that's where we land, we can't lose ultimately. Yeah. One thing I heard you guys say that was really helpful for me was this idea of ownership, you know, the this tendency to pass the buck and to place blame externally, but to recognize that I am a culprit in this. You use the phrase, Drew, that we are both the oppressed and the oppressor. And that's a, a humble posture to recognize that I'm part of the problem. And I can, from that posture, then be part of the solution as well. I was thinking of the tendency that we have to be selective even in where we place the blame on the collective entities, that some would place, you know, the kind of critical theory language, place the blame on capital markets, where others would place the blame on government. And for us as believers to kind of level the playing field to say, we are all culpable. <laughs> there is no one who is not at fault in this equation. And and maybe in closing here, I was thinking of Jesus as the ultimate foil to the shortcomings of critical theory in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, essentially saying that Jesus having, possessing all power, being in very nature God, set aside his divinity, set aside his power, and became a servant to all, humbled himself, and was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And it's because of that reason that God's highly 
exalted him. And that's our model as believers, that voluntary putting aside of power and the, the different power grabs and humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves, that we might become the servants of all in the footsteps of our master. That's it for this week. Thank you, Dr. Crenshaw, for joining us. What a delight, what a treat, and so grateful for uh, your mind and your thinking in this regard. And we will catch you next time on Ideology. I mean, I think you can talk to But I think, yeah, but where we, you know, see it really is you talked about uh, uh, Derrida and Foucault. Is my saying it right? I don't know. I think it's Mikkel. We never know how to. Yeah, let's let's do a. Jacques Derrida. No, it is Derrida. It's Jacques Derrida. Derrida is right. And then I think it's Foucault. Foucault. I think you don't pronounce a T, do you? Foucault. 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 We're going to solve this. Foucault. Is there a website that spells? The way, this been, is real high tech uh, podcasting here. By the way, I've been recording this whole uh, oh, that's great. Oh, really? run up, <laughs> so we might do like a montage at the end of the uh... outtakes. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many people actually know how to pronounce his name. That would be a. Funny... I mean, I remember reading in rhetoric. I think it's Foucault. I I wrote his name down, but I don't have the I pronunciation. I do not know French. But no, nor do I. Foucault. Mikel Foucault. Almost sounds like we're cussing. Foucault, okay. I think it's Mikel, though. It's not because it's French. It's a catchy intro. Michel Foucault. Michel. We're going to let Christina say this one because you're the one with the PhD, Foucault. so uh, if it's wrong. Well, if we don't know it, probably the listeners don't either. Yeah. We it's, take it's like Old Testament uh, Hebrew words. Just yeah. say it confidently, and no one knows if you're making it up. Exactly. Um, okay, so I'll get us kicked off. I'll kick it over.